What's going on, everyone? You're tuned in to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and today's guest on the show is Rob Durdeck. Rob is an entrepreneur, actor, producer, reality TV personality, and former skateboarder. You might recognize him from the hit reality TV shows Robin Big, Rob Durdeck's Fantasy Factory, and Ridiculousness. He's currently the founder and CEO of Durdeck Machine, a venture creation studio that fuses art, science, and magic to create meaningful businesses that stand the test of time and impact the world. We had a blast chatting with Rob and getting to know more about him and his personal story, as well as his incredible entrepreneurial journey over the last 30 years and the lessons he's picked up along the way. Here we go. Well, Rob, thanks for having us at your, this is called the Deer Deck Machine, right? It's correct. The Deer Deck Machine in Los Angeles. Uh, Could you describe it for your listeners, what the experience was like to come up here? Yeah, so the experience was pretty uh, white glove. Uh, We had our guests meet us downstairs. He anticipated our arrival, which is impressive to begin with. Uh, Exited the elevator. We saw him jubilantly open the doors. We walked in. Filled with energy. Walked up the, excuse me, we took the elevator up to this beautiful space which is red black and white with amazing lights a big studio mm. looking over beverly hills ah, looking um, over the entire city of los angeles yeah there you go so so far it's a good start so right, you know right. you you set the tone pretty high up and you painted a perfect picture too yeah uh, thank you Loved it. um we have we've done this about 203 times now so yeah, hopefully hopefully we know how to you know speak a little bit well rob the way we like to start off almost every podcast is just kind of hearing about your early days right like what were you like as a kid where did you grow up uh give us a little bit of color on that uh born and raised in kettering ohio uh father was a suit salesman mother was a stay-at-home mom um found skateboarding at 11 years old uh decided i was going to be a professional skateboarder at a time when skateboarders made about 500 bucks a month um got recognized for the talent that i had at a pretty pretty early age and uh, was sponsored by the local skate shop that was um, ran by a 19-year-old serial entrepreneur that that began uh, my journey of believing that I was just meant to create companies very early on. Um, I watched him create company after company. I like to refer to myself as being raised by entrepreneur wolves. Um, I then, of course, simultaneously got really, really good at skateboarding and became a professional at 16 years old, Uh, quit high school at the time after my junior year, got enough credits to get a diploma. Uh, Then I moved to California, San Diego, California, where I pursued my career as a professional skateboarder and at 17 years old started my very first company, Orion Trucks. Um, but that's sort of the, 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 you know, the 20 year catch up of sort of how like athletics and sort of entrepreneurialism kind of blended and was part of my, my growing up that led to what I do today. What was like your home life? Like, I mean, just before you even got into skateboarding and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I'm, you know, my dad was, was, you know, sort of an optimistic type of guy who was always like, you you know, what can your dad do? What can you do this, dad? Of course I can do it. I'm your dad. I can do anything. You know, I think that sort of optimism, um, you know, was, was what kind of gave me my optimism. And then that of course was balanced with the like, don't do anything. You're going to get hurt. He shouldn't skateboard. Why is he doing this? You need to take karate because you're small. You got to defend yourself. You know, like this paranoia. Um, that, that, that sort of gave me that sort of balance between 
between the both, but it's it's unusual. You know, I'd, I was extraordinarily driven from a very, very early, early age. And then I also felt bigger than my home, my parents, and my life in Ohio from probably about 11 or 12 on. So it wasn't like I, even as I worked, it wasn't like when I was 14, it was like I was already putting together the strategy to get out of school early. Yeah. Uh, so it's, but it was still, you know, a nice Midwest core yeah. value. But was there anything that happened in your life at like a young age that caused you to be that way, to be that driven, to be that ambitious, or was it just natural? Uh, it was natural, right? I, if I was to really say what it is, I think it was because of the time I was born and what name I was given. Uh, if I could take it all the way back to the numerology and astrology, uh, because it's unexplainable, right? Because there's no person in my family that's driven uh, or comes from uh, that sort of level of ambition or accomplishment, desire, let alone uh, doing anything. Everyone is just traditional Midwest, uh, work really hard till the day that you die, like work for the weekends and try to have a family and and. Uh, get by the best you can for your summer vacations, right? I think it's sort of that Midwest um, uh, middle class sort of lifestyle, you know, of what what the American dream is, buy a home, uh, have some kids and a dog. So I, I don't know. It's It's really, really hard to explain, but there's no doubt. You know, I made a phone call to the local skate uh, skate shop when I was 11 years old they had a ramp in the back and it's I'm like I wanted to skate it but you had to pay we didn't have any money I made a deal if I could get 10 people to pay that they would let me skate for free like just cold call and I don't even know where that comes from but that's what what did that do that built the foundation of self-belief yeah. where I'm gonna just gonna call this random like I don't have the money to get in there I'm gonna call this random shop and see if though if I get people to come if they'll let me skate for free and then what happens I go and skate that ramp for the first time and they were so blown away by how well I skated that ramp for the first time ever skating a ramp they sponsored me so you know you can call it what you want I sat there strategized at 11 years old that I'm just going to call the skate shop and see if I can finagle a way to skate for free which makes no sense (laughs) it's it's interesting because you had this like entrepreneurial tendency but then you also had like you were a really good skateboarder at the same time so and they both seem like at least to me, that they were kind of just almost like natural talents. Because at that young age, you haven't lived enough and experienced enough and done enough to even be like a pro at something, unless it's like kind of supernatural, right? And so, like when you noticed that, um, did you think that that was going to be like the rest of your life? Like you were going to be a skateboarder, you're going to be an entrepreneur. Like, did you have? Did, did anyone try to drill like this, like more quote unquote, like? secure or organized or like structured path to you at the time that confused you at all or uh, you know yes of course they did right like i mean you're talking you know you're, you're talking even when you start to find success and you're a professional and all this stuff you know it's how ah, you're still gonna have to get a job like the rest of us you know my mom's still like you gotta go to school you gotta go to school you know i want to say i was shooting robin big you know had millions of dollars driving a bentley and my mom was like just tell me do you have enough money saved to go to school <laughs> you know what i mean like what we're still talking about that yeah. but yeah I, I think you know the truth is 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 you you will Whoever you are, when you gr- when you grow up around, you don't grow up around a growth mindset. When your parents don't have a growth mindset, when when you are 
your DNA is filled with limiting beliefs that everyone around you is, I wouldn't even say they're doing it in a negative way to pull you down, but they're just protecting, they're trying to protect you from the inevitable letdown the same way they got that letdown, right? So it's not, it's not like this malicious sort of way, but what happened to me was, is I already at an early age just didn't buy into the philosophy and I kept proving the philosophy wrong. And the moment you begin to take risk and then something works out, you achieve something no matter how small it is, like calling the skate shop and getting them to allow you to come down and then them recognizing you Mm -hmm. for your talent – that's the foundation of self-belief. You get right? this like confidence. Right. It's it's confidence because at the end of the day, it's most people like don't get the benefit of building the foundation of confidence that they get to com- compound right. by the time they get into their more development years. Most yeah. of the time, it's the opposite where it's like you got to get into college before you begin to start to build your self-worth and your confidence or you got to get into the, the workforce and take what you learned in college and now begin to uh, build some experience and recognition to begin to build that. It, it comes in varying stages and I always think that that's – Probably the most profound, unexplainable thing that happened to me that really created the trajectory for the career path that I've had, given Mm -hmm. how unusual it is and how I've done so many different things and found success on so many different levels. It's only explained because you had such a a deep-rooted foundation of self-belief so early on. And to that point on self-belief, I feel like it sounds like it's something that comes from you know, it's like at a young age, you can people can tell you how certain things work or how the world works, but you kind of go out there and you put it to the test and you see what works and what doesn't for yourself. And now you start believing in your abilities and the ability to actually, it's a kind of like seeking truth and finding truth for yourself, right? Um, which, you know, it's like something that maybe if you're kind of in the school system for like so, so long and then you finally go out to work, like it comes like later in your life versus at a young age, you know, like being entrepreneurial like yourself and going and doing a bunch of things and seeing what works and what doesn't. Yeah, but I, but I, it still boils down to this unexplainable situations and experiences that happen along the way, right? Because there's still plenty of people that have get, get, a, get a lot out of school, yeah. get focused in the right direction of their passion and like their career path and what they see for their life vision at an early age. And now you, you're laying the foundation in high school that of what you're going to go into college and go and do. And then college is this much more enjoyable experience because now you're learning in the direction of the life that you saw for yourself and you want to achieve. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I think it always boils down to the clarity of the direction that you're heading at a young age because you've got to be pointed in the same direction and growing into that direction um, to begin to understand how much that you need to learn to do it really well and have it actually become in deliver you the fulfillment you're seeking out of it because in the beginning you just see the end of like oh if I could be uh, you know this that would give me right. the life that I want but you don't really real till you go on that journey 
you have to basically go through the process to learn how much you actually need to learn to get there. Right. Yeah. You know, and most and just, people quit before they get there. Totally. And just to piggyback, piggyback off of that kind of discussion, I think there's been an, and I think we are in the middle of this shift now, right? Like Pat and I both come from immigrant families where, you know, they have that immigrant mindset that, you know, we came here, you know, we worked hard, we achieved something and we're comfortable, right? We don't want to take that extra risk because we might lose it all. Right, and what happens if we lose it all? It already happened to us one time. Right, it might because they to have again. lost it all. Totally. To your point, right? right. Yeah. And so, I think we're in this shift now. However, that the next generation, and not just of immigrant families, just in general, where it's not all about a linear path. Like, I'm not going to medical school just to become a doctor. I'm not going to, you know, studying engineering to just become an engineer. It's become like this circuitous kind of path where you kind of try it all. You make mistakes. You learn a new thing. You learn a new skill. You figure out something else. You un- NFTs come up, you right? Like you're just always kind of figuring it out. And I think it's a shift that the quote unquote older generation hasn't understood, nor do they have to, nor do I think they will. But the younger generation, those now that are in their 18 year olds to 30, 35, 40 year olds, they're like, okay, we have all these skills. We have access to all this information that even during your time when you're cold calling, you didn't have access to that internet, right? There's so many things that you didn't know back then, you know, now, so you can kind of you've kind of sped your way through a certain number of years just because of the information that you have like in an instant. And so you can try it all. You can take more risks. You can do more things. And again, I think that's what builds the confidence. That's what builds kind of the ability in you to say, "Yeah, I guess I can do this." And if it doesn't work out, so be it. But for you, did that ever happen? I mean, did did it ever not work out early on or was it always just it was working out until you hit a stop sign? Well, let me let me let me piggyback a little bit on what you said because I think I think your 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 version of it's a little dangerous, right? In the sense of like when you're trying to you can try a million things if you don't know what you want to do, right? But it's only when you can finally like lock in right. and get in a single direction and evolve and grow into a single direction where it becomes extraordinarily valuable in a lot of different senses but but the biggest sense is you know your 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 understanding of failure turns into like i'm just evolving and growing when you're making progress even though you're failing and having all these different things towards the sort of goal that that you hope to achieve or what you're trying to achieve once you've figured it out and and i think the difference with today's uh day versus like like the immigrant mindset of like it's just like survival and like lay a root down and this is what we are and this Mm -hmm. is like it's work hard prove that you're willing to do the work it's what type of life it's quality of life is what the the kids and the people growing up of today of like i want an amazing life yep and what my amazing life is different to me than what it is to my parents and what that is. And I think that that the quicker you can define what an amazing life is to yourself and then you can begin to design what that amazing life looks like and then begin to create the pathway there. Um, when did it, you realize your what your definition of an amazing life was? I was 40 years old. Hmm. 40 years old. You know what I mean? So it's not like... I, this this evolved way of thinking, I can look back because I am the definition of like, 
I had no path. I like, even as I was like a professional skateboarder, it wasn't enough for me. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I still was like, you know, starting all these companies and like, you know, like DC came along. Now I have signature products and now I'm making all this additional money and like skateboarding begins to really blow up and I'm starting record labels and I'm starting this and that. And, and, you know, in and out of relationships and, and like, then it's like, oh, now I'm like going to be on TV. Now I look at this. Now I'm on TV. Like, look at this entirely new world. Now I'm going to start this and that. It's like, what, what I, I kept doing is I kept thinking if I keep doing more, eventually one of them is going to be the thing that defines me, makes me truly happy. And then, uh, I'm going to be really happy then. And I think like, you know, in 2013, I was faced with this, you know, in total chaos, but you would have thought it was on top of the world, right? You know, I had a cartoon on Nickelodeon, two shows on MTV, you know, I just flipped a car for a Super Bowl commercial, been attacked by sharks, like broke the world record for jumping a car back. Look, I'm on top of the world, Mm -hmm. but you know, I had 13 different companies like Fantasy Factory, Ridiculousness came out, a hit show like Cartoon, Wild Grinders on Nickelodeon, fully integrated multi-platform universe of brands and media. But I was just being pulled in a million different directions. Like would work really hard and then collapse and like, like then I would just party all the time. Like, you know, I couldn't like, like, I was like, kept doing, what do I got to do? I got to do one more thing, right? Mm. Launch Street League. Now I got my professional skateboarding league. I'm going to change skateboarding. It's super spread thin. Super spread thin. Was it like almost like an, like an addiction for you? I, like I addicted to working? It's, it's, you know, I love to create, right? Yeah. So it wasn't yeah. like, it wasn't in this, it wasn't in a dark form. It wasn't like I was trying to prove something or something to happen. Like I just loved building and creating, but I was building and creating in all of these different directions. Mm. And I, and what I realized, because at the time I had, I had never heard of an investment banker. (laughs) I had never heard of, I didn't understand venture capital. I didn't understand raising money. At that point I had all of that and I paid for it all myself, financed all of that. Mm -hmm. And somebody told me that my professional skateboarding league was worth $30 million. And we had did, you know, like seven and a half million dollars in revenue. They're like, look, this thing trades for four times. Okay, first of all, how can somebody something be worth four times the revenue? It doesn't even it's like I lost like a hundred grand last year. <laughs> like it doesn't even make money. That's how that's in 2013. That is how much I did not understand the world that I today, that eight years later that I would consider myself on a way to mastery of, right? Yeah. And at that time, um, we went out to market. And it's like, here's every, and and for the for the league, right? Um, and what was the league called? Street League Skateboarding, mm-hmm. right? So I basically created the NBA of skateboarding in 2010. Um, you know, it had, had all the best skateboarders in the world signed exclusively. And that's when, you know, I had hired a CEO at the time thinking that I needed somebody like older to try to help me run this, this chaos, right? Because I kept hiring people to help me figure it out instead mm-hmm. of me figuring it out and then hiring the people to do it, right? But in 2013, they saw what I was doing. They're like, we don't want uh, to do a deal with you, like invest in your league. We want to invest in everything you're doing. So they offered to, instead of giving me a 
investment in my league, they wanted to invest in a 360 deal for all things Rob Deer And who are we talking about here? This is a private equity group. Got it. And so when they did the diligence on me and pulled all my finances apart, saw like how I ran my money, I had companies in Nevada and like <laughs> Deer I was like run. This I had guys this incorporated sh- in every state. I had, inc- I have incor- <laughs> I had literally like, it like, corpse and like every tax-free zone i had money spread out all over the place like had almost no money invested like like just had all my own ventures that i was like cash flowing right that were creating no value like i basically when it all came down to it i was a tv guy an ex-pro skater that still got paid as a as a pro skater and a tv guy and i had created basically no value and instead of giving me like life changing money that I thought at the time, that and then the pathway to becoming a billionaire, mm-hmm. they basically offered to loan me money and put me on a salary for me to figure it out. And then they had the right to own half of me for life. And that was this like just extraordinary awakening because I had, you know, I had spent a couple million making a skate film. I had, you know, invested a couple million into the league. Like I had just made millions and invested millions and all these things that just hadn't really created the value. And at the end of the day, that league wasn't trading at, at four times revenue. It was trading at, at, you know, one and a half times revenue because it's an events business, mm-hmm. you know. And so for me at that time, it it was this incredible awakening of how much of a business person I wasn't and that I wasn't creating value and I needed to learn how to – I needed to learn business and I needed to learn to create value. And I found a book – uh, while I was searching for a consultancy group that could help turn it into a, a system for me and help teach me all of it, I found a, 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 a book by a consultancy out here called Bean. Um, now I'm saying before you start winning because it's behind me now. It's my mantra. Uh, it's called Start at the End, yep. right? And and it was just a concept of like doesn't matter what type of business you're creating. Define what the outcome of that business is, whether it's you know, three million in sales and five hundred thousand in profit right. that you own half of, or you own, and you need this. To figure out everything, like the business plan. Like, in, but figure out what you want out of it and why. Like, what does the end yeah, game like look like? What to you? What do yeah. you want? Like, what do you actually want? Because nobody does. They just like, I want to start this business and I want it to be successful. You don't even know what that means. So it was this very eye opening thing. But at the same time, I realized, like, well, I, what do I want out of life? Yeah. And, and simultaneously, it began this awakening of like defining who I wanted to be and what type of life that I wanted, then deciding what are all of the parts of that and beginning to design each of those parts and how each of those integrated and then grew together was basically what I did in 2014 and 15 before launching um basically this entire life and business fully integrated life and business plan and strategy to evolve and become the person that i am today in 2021 mm-hmm. right? so again at 40 yeah i really discovered like this is what you're missing this is what if you keep going this route of keep trying and trying and do another thing and do more and do more and do more you're just never going to find happiness 
until you define what happiness is and grow into your ideal version yeah. of yourself. Right? Yeah, and and I totally I totally understand. But the one thing that I'm wondering, because you kind of talked about it before, was like there was no blueprint for what you wanted to do, right? This is pure like entrepreneurship. Like you're just yeah. going out there. You're you, you might be coming up on an opportunity that you know seems promising you're just going to say yes to it and then figure it out later and see how it goes and clearly you had done that many times and and they had done really well for you right you had your shows you had your skateboarding career you had all these things that you you did really well at it wasn't like you failed at those things at least not from my perspective or anyone that perhaps saw you so it's almost like it was a natural progression to that point and had you had i'm wondering had you had that mindset in the beginning would you have even gone about having such a successful career to that point you know what i'm saying like yeah if you well i guess what i'm trying to say is had you go if you could go back now like would you have done it that way or you know look for as happy as i am right you're talking about someone that probably you know rarely has a negative thought right who has um extraordinary like high quality of life, who's mastered time, energy, and personal capacity, who has extraordinary relationships, an amazing family, who lives fully balanced, who has um, created extraordinary success and and generational wealth, okay, um, in a very short amount of, of time, mm-hmm. right? And the peace and the joy for life that I have would I have been able to live it at 47 um, if I started it and at 22? Like, would I be sad that I didn't, like, get attacked by a tiger right. and, like, you know, break a world record for jumping a car backwards 90 feet or buy a racehorse and jockey it for a race at Hollywood Park and then have 11 racehorses and, you know, have a horse, uh, sell a horse for $2 million that placed third in the Breeders' Cup? I don't know if it defined me, but I can certainly tell you like that level of adventure and the amount of things that I have done, I could never say, oh, I wish I didn't do that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, but it's, the, it's the, the cost of what it took on me physically, mentally, and sort of how I was really just achieving rather than living a joyous, experiential, amazing life. Mm -hmm. I was just achieving, right? So, you know, I'm... I wouldn't say I could ever... There's no, like, regret, but I would certainly never... um, raise my children to be like, hey, just go out there and go nutty (laughs) until you can figure it all out. Like I really, I really think fundamentally, like you want to live, you want to get up every day excited to live. Mm -hmm. You want to, you want to have a life where you go from thing to thing to thing and you, you, it gives you energy. It doesn't take energy from you, you know? And to me, um, that's really the goal of everyone and and would I have preferred to live like that um, in my 20s and 30s? I think I would, you know, but uh, do I regret the insanity of my existence and the depth of adventure? Um, certainly not, you know what I mean? And, and but I, I can tell you this, I've had an extraordinary amount of life lessons yeah. 
and none of them are of much value that I lived in my 20s and early 30s. Mm. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't till I was learning with purpose and right. intent and failing with, with direction mm. did I actually compound knowledge and develop and grow and evolve into the person that I am today. I, I want to kind of take you down memory lane a little bit because I know you started – I know you had mentioned 11 years old, but your pro career started at 16, right? That's right. Talk to us about that experience. I mean, what are some of the lessons that you learned from your professional skating skateboarding career that you know you have applied today, and that perhaps others can also take away? I mean, Pat and I have interviewed at this point, including your cousin Drama, two skateboarders, right? Maybe even three. more. Yeah, we probably had more. Paul Rodriguez, but people that had started uh, skateboarding early right. on in their life right. and now are like successful right. entrepreneurs in other areas. Yeah. So I mean, I'm curious at this point. I mean, there seems to be a common thread. You know, why do skateboarders become successful? And I want to find out from you what some of your learnings were and how that has, you know, impacted you, you today. Well, look, I, I'm like skateboarding uh, itself is foundationally a goal achievement system, right? So yeah. this is how it works. You want to like do a kickflip back Smith grind on a handrail. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to first identify, I want to do a kickflip back Smith grind on a handrail. And it, when you first identify it, it's something you've never done before, right? And it gets you excited and you think of like how much respect you're going to have for it and how amazing it's going to be. But then what do you got to do? You got to then build the pathway to get there. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing you got to do is be able to backside Smith grind a ledge, right? So <laughs> now you got to learn the backside Smith grind on the ledge. That's your first milestone. If you don't ever backside Smith grind the ledge, you are never going to kickflip backside Smith grind a handrail, mm -hmm. right? So first milestone, you you have to believe that you can backside Smith grind a ledge. You learn it on the ledge, you're like, okay, okay, what are you doing? You're building some momentum here. Like, man, I could really do it. Now it's like, okay, you got to kickflip into it, right? Now trial and error, you try it over and over and over. And what are you doing while you're failing? You're adjusting, you're adjusting, you're rethinking, you're adjusting, you're adjusting. And as long as you keep getting closer and closer, you're believing, you're making progress. Boom, you kickflip backside, Smith grind the ledge, milestone two. You're like, what? Yeah. What? Now the energy, the self-belief, like I, I really am going to be able to do this kickflip backside, Smith grind on this rail. Repeat, repeat. Backside Smith guy in the rail, you eventually through trial and error, fear conquering, and a, a, a tenuous long journey, you finally accomplish your goal. And that is a, a microcosm of sort of what the foundation of the learning process that you're ingrained in as a skateboarder, right? And so I think it just applies to just a lot of different fields, but primarily fundamentally deciding what it is you want to do and then the steps to get there and then all the iterations that it mm -hmm. takes to have, to grow into uh, achieving a goal like that is, is one aspect of what I think it is. And I think the other side is it's an – it's a creative sport. It's mm -hmm. you, you make it your own. Yep. You, you make it your version. You decide the pathway that you're going to do it. Like, and you decide the tricks you want to learn, the way you want to do them, how you want to dress, like all these different things that I think just lend itself to a right brain, left brain sort of, um, creation. And, and then we're entrepreneurial entrepreneurial by nature because we've kind of had to carve our own path 
um, it's always been a sort of for us, by us industry where yeah. all of the skateboarders, um, all the companies are skateboarder owned and eventually like the sub companies under there skateboarder owned. <laughs> like it's just this entire ecosystem of by skateboarders for skateboarders. Just to play devil's advocate here for a second. I a hundred percent agree with that. And, but at the same time, skateboarding is also a solo sport versus let's say basketball football baseball you know as well how does that impact you as a future entrepreneur right in in the sense that is it more challenging to work in a team setting or do you just and and the reason i ask that is because myself i just want to do it all Mm -hmm. right i'm like why would i have somebody else do it i think i could do better right did that ever lend itself to you because you were just like I got to this level by myself. Sure, I had sponsors. I had a team around me, et cetera. But ultimately, it was me. Like, I was the one performing. You used to be a skateboarder? No, I didn't. No, I used to play tennis. Kidding. but I used to play tennis, but it's, again, solo sport. You but, know? but look, I, I, I agree with you. And I think it was, like, um, I think it was difficult for me. Like, uh, and a lot, of, a lot of different levels. Because I think, you know, me and you are cut from the same cloth where it's like you always – um like especially depending on the range right like is like you have a vision for how it should be done and then when you hire someone and they can't even like come close to this like what (laughs) what like you just want but you know you can't do it because you got to do other things right i think it becomes um an extraordinary difficult thing to grow into over time And, and i think it's another part of the evolution as an executive that i had to go through Right. And because I, I was just really aggressive of like, I just, I'm paying you all this money and hired you to figure this out. And why can't you figure this out? Right. Right. Like, and then it's like your fault that this stuff isn't working. It's not my fault. I hired you to do this. Right. And, and I think that was sort of how uh, I work. Cause the problem with that is, is I also found success doing it that way. So it's, it's the ultimate, like, you know, like problem when, you're overly controlling and and pushing everybody and blaming other people when it's not working, but the stuff you jump in on always works. All you're doing is reinforcing. It's like confirmation bias. That's it. It's 100% bias, and it's and it's in when fundamentally you know that, or you should know that the only way to actually build like a, something of quality and scale is with a, ro- a lot of really great people with that have clear goals and clear KPIs mm-hmm. um, and, and that feedback to the big vision of what you're hoping to accomplish, right? But again, had to grow into that, right? Because it's like, oh, man, it was like I my ambition and my will to make stuff work was what I always relied on, mm-hmm. right? Like the gift of execution of if I say I'm going to do it, it's going to happen, Right. And stop it. Nothing. Um, and, and I think that, you know, what I what was what was what I was really able to do is I began to find this sort of harmony between these systems that I created and this clear life vision is that you just become so clear on how all of it is operating. But then 
how the parts that you actually need and what they need to actually do to serve the entire thing, which allows it to exponentially grow and take less effort from you and get the results you want. Like I eventually learned to grow out of, of being the solo sport. Like I'm, I got all the best ideas bias and I Mm -hmm. still fight it though. Yeah, Yeah, of course. I still have to like, like fire an opinion and then like but that's just what i see right now like i've got to put a disclaimer <laughs> yeah. on it because i'm so quick to shoot yeah, you know yeah. what i mean like that's totally wrong like <laughs> you know what i mean like i've had to grow into the disclaimer <laughs> um i'm curious did you uh, i mean early on in your life did you have any like people that you really looked up to or were inspired by that maybe like kind of helped guide you a little bit you know i had two i, I really um, i had three major mentors in sort of my teenage to early 20s uh going into my 30s um uh, mentors that affected sort of my development as a business person right Right. because jimmy george uh was the founder of the skate shop that i call and he was 19 years old and he went on to be a big serial entrepreneur including building a distribution center that then um you know the i rode for a company called uh, GNS that was ran by a guy named Chris Carter and Mike Hill. Mm-hmm. And um, these guys came back to Dayton, Ohio from California and started the alien workshop that I turned pro for with Jimmy George. So I watched all of this happen at an early age, but then, you know, I've seen G- Jimmy George start all these companies and it, it began to lay that foundation. Even as a, even when I turned pro when I was 16, I always I was like, I'm a business. I got to treat myself as a business and I would track all my finances, you know, (laughs) and in 1991, I sold one board and got a $2 check. So I got a, you know, $2 uh, (laughs) for Christmas in there in 1991. But, but then the founder of the Alien Workshop, the company I turned pro for, it was a right left brain group, right? So Mike did all the creative uh, Chris did all the the operations and the financial side, so I began to you know look at both of them, both from a creative mentorship and brand building mentorship. And then when I um, moved to California, and then eventually Ken Block, who's the founder of DC Shoes, mm-hmm. like seeing sort of his process and and seeing what it's like to now really build a big big company. He had multiple companies like that, that trifecta and sort of from like 11 to like 17, 17 to like, uh, you know, 24, 25, 25 to like 30 was like the core sort of influence that I had, uh, from, from, from really a great right brain, left brain development, Mm -hmm. right? Like I was, I was also just given the gift of being super creative but understanding that there's still sort of a science side and, and the fundamental side of business. But I didn't embrace it until I was much older, right? Yeah. I, I, I used it as a foundation, but I had to really learn it to, to apply it once I got older because I've always been sort of creative, marketing, brand, visionary driven before I taught myself all aspects of business to become more multidimensional in the way that I look at business as a whole, you know? Yeah. How did the, how did the opportunity to get into like media and television come about? You know, I, I had all this pressure on me as a professional skateboarder, uh, because the video parts are define your career and DC was doing a video, um, and the DC video and my video part in it, I wasn't as good of a skateboarder as the rest of the guys on the team. 
So I had to get creative, and I just thought it would be really funny if I wrote a skit for part of my video part that I bring a security guard with me to deal with security guards, right? And I just thought that would be so funny. And we, you know, uh, Greg Hunt, the video director at the time, he just called like a local like security agency in San Diego <laughs> and said, hey, we're we're looking for a guy. He's like, he's like big, but he's like kind of lovable, like and kind of, but he's kind of funny, like, and he's like, oh, I got the perfect guy for you. Uh, and he introduced us to Christopher Big Black Boykin and, and, you know, we just, we shot the skit for, for the skate video and hit it off and as friends and it just really blew up in skateboarding and then that led to uh me and him were doing a car race together uh that was dc was sponsoring called gumball 3000 across <laughs> europe yeah. and they were filming a documentary a, a, about it and the guy filming the documentary ruben fleischer he's a big big time movie director now um was like you guys should do a show you know, and at the time, I'm like, I don't have time to do a show. Like, I had so many business things and all these other yeah. things. Like, that aspect of it was too crazy. And where would these videos that you're shooting be? Like, on 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 the internet? Or no, was it- no, this is before the internet. This They're just in VHS. VH- oh, really? So people had to like DVDs. walk into a skate shop or yeah, something. And buy yeah, it. this is only. It blew up in skateboarding only. There yeah. was no the YouTube. <laughs> no wasn't, mass distribution. Yeah, 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 no. This came out in like 2004. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, so. Yeah. There was there was no aspect of it. This is just a hundred percent like, you know, fade. And then, um, you know, Jeff Tremaine, who does Jackass, watched the the movie uh, Gumball Three Thousand that Ruben directed that me and Big Black were in, and he was like, "Man, these guys should do a show." And me and Jeff knew each other because Jeff did Big Brother Skate Magazine um, before Jackass, and then we all got connected and was like, "All right, let's just give it a shot," I guess. And right? was it just straight improv? Yeah, so in in the in the beginning, um, it was straight improv, and then you know when we pitched it, look, when I pitched it to MTV the very first time, it was I brought in the song "People Let Me Tell You About My Best Friend." Yeah. We called it a buddy comedy, you know. And at the time, you got to understand there was no such thing as comedy reality TV. Right. It was just like the Osbournes a little bit, but it was primarily like just drama mm. and like survivors and and bachelors you know and and so you know when i when 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 i would speak about the vision for the show and the whole thing it, basically they wouldn't buy the 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 buddy comedy they're like this is about you like he's just like you wrote the idea for the skit you're the professional skateboarder like he's just like part of your world and so they didn't buy it was called best friends that we pitched to them they didn't they they Bought a show called Rob Dyrdek's Rules to Success, and rule number one was always surround yourself with good people, and he was part of that, right? So super secondary, mm-hmm. and and then when we shot the pilot, it was just terrible. <laughs> they made us do this whole script, like this entire thing, like all the executives were like in my house, like it was so bad, like, and so like midway through the scripted scene, like like midway through the scripted scene. He was like, no, for sure. If we were in prison, I'd be able to catch you. I'm like, bro, you would not be able to catch me in prison. Okay, like it just turned into like, he's like, oh, I'm, I, I bet I could get you in a foot race. I'm like, you could not get me in a foot race. Like, and it immediately went off script. Then like, we, then let's make a bet. Let's make a bet. Let's go fucking foot. Like it immediately turned into like what the show is like yeah. instantly. And so, you know, they, 
after the the first pilot was uh was uh, edited they knew that there was potential in it and so they brought in Shane Nickerson uh who was the story editor on on uh Nick and Jessica's uh mm-hmm. uh television reality show and then he pulled out everything and was like no this is a show about them and then it became robin big black and then the head of the network was like we can't call him big black like we've like tried to be like this is what he's called like it's not like like it's not offensive like and and then they made us change it to robin big despite our pleas and then now it feels normal, but back yeah. then it was like, God, this just sounds so weird, like big. It doesn't even make sense. Like that's <laughs> not even your name, you know. But it, it was a, it was a you know, twofold for me. I knew its potential, right? So I negotiated all of my deals for for lower salary and higher royalties, right? Both in footwear and boards and all types of stuff. I started a clothing brand. Um, uh, with Travis Barker at mm-hmm. the time, like because I saw what had happened to Bam Margera's board sales, shoe sales, and all this stuff from being on Jackass. Yeah, and so I was like, I pre-negotiated, like just betting. Like that, you knew at some point you were going to do that, so you included that in your negotiations initially. Yeah, yeah, like I did it before the show launched, betting because then that for them to pay me less and give me a bigger royalty, they were like, heck yeah. Well, yeah, you have more leverage up front. You yeah. have more leverage up front because they're like, oh, this show might not succeed. That's it. If it's successful, yeah. That's you're it. not getting shit. Right, and it's like it's, it's almost like what George Lucas did with uh, like uh, Star Wars. He like yeah. negotiated um, all like the merchandise and all the like the toys and everything. Right, that was like hundred percent his. I think right. or something like that. And and then look, it exploded, and then. Uh, not only did I make all the money off of that, but then when when I went to do Fantasy Factory, I now understand the power of like the brand integration. And I would only do Fantasy Factory if they would give me the integration rights. Yeah. So they said, okay, fine, whatever. So now I could sell the the platform. So what I do, I sold it to Chevy and Microsoft and Carl's Jr. Mm-hmm. and and I would build all these brands and I basically use that platform now to amplify every single thing that I had and build content around all these brand partnerships. And that's how Drama launched Young and Reckless, right? Yeah, and then and then Drama Drama used the the media to the purest form and again it's like e- even that it's like, you know, the the, the thing he was given the platform but he took ownership of it from the very beginning. You know what I mean? Like we were not partners. All, like I tried to chime in a little bit on, you know, because I didn't like the name. Yeah. And like, you know, I tried to chime in a little bit here and there and ultimately, you know, really allowed him to go and do it. And not only did he launch it off that platform, but then he had the wherewithal and the smarts to know, like, I got to learn business. I got to build this beyond the show. Uh, which he really did, you know, and really created something uh, mu- bigger, much bigger than what the launch pad of that show provided, right. you know. Yeah. So, um, so I guess after that point, you know, like obviously so, so many other things came. You said Fantasy Factory and then Ridiculousness. I mean, did it just feel like that was your life was just being like on TV and like a media guy at that point? Or did you still feel like, oh, I need a... I'm still not, that's like just one part of it. And I, I'm, I have these like grand ambitions. I want to be, you know, business owner here, business owner there. You got to understand, I I owned so many businesses at the time. Yeah. Right. And was doing so many things. And, you know, but, but again, I, uh, I'll say it again at scale, 
It was Fantasy Factory, Ridiculousness, Wild Grinders, Street League, like all the brands that I had, all the brand partnerships that I had, like Rob Dyrdek, the brand, along with all the the actual brands that were created. Um, and so to me, I never – I always looked at myself as I'm just utilizing this as a business uh, amplification for a business platform, right, a, a way to generate revenue. But I I – wasn't creating value. The only thing that was building value was the the brand of Rob Deerdeck. And what did the brand of Rob Deerdeck want to be? Do I want to be a model for for DC clothing and shoes? Do yeah. I want to be? Am I? Do I want to be on? T, am I a TV guy? Do I want to host? Do I want to be like an actor? Like, what do I want to do with this? I didn't want to do any of that. That is a form of value. I mean, like, it's it's what. So I'm curious, like, what that value meant to you? Like, can you elaborate on that? Right. So yeah. I'm where. That value is the same value as creative services. Mm. It's only as good as the next project, Mm. right? And to me, um, it's also not like I didn't look at myself as a television guy. I didn't want to do TV. I didn't. I was only doing this because it amplified the business stuff. Only the business stuff wasn't creating the value or the success at the scale that I thought it should by now and and really looked at that 360 deal when it happened as like, okay, finally someone's going to come in and teach me business the right way and turn me into the billionaire I was meant to be. Mm. So, you know, despite doing all of that, I still had not like connected with my core identity of being an extraordinary business person um, is the, the version of myself that I really saw, right? And I never took the time to learn how to actually become that or I or define that. So I was literally just doing thing after thing the way I'd always done it, and it was it was it was working. But it was work. It was taking so much effort and energy, and it was highs and lows, and some things didn't work, and some things did, and I had no understanding of what I was doing or why I was doing it. It was just do more mm-hmm. till one of them defined you. Yeah. Right. And look, there were periods in there where I was like, okay, I'm quitting all this. And I'm just going to run Street League. Street League's my passion. This is my baby. I built this league. I'm going to turn this into a billion-dollar league. And then like literally like the week of like only focusing on that, I was like miserable and sad where it's like, what? I don't want to like run this league. You know what I mean? Like I love just creating, right? Like that's sort of the uh, beginning of the evolution that led to the, the concept of the machine and ultimately – the way that I designed the machine um, as a business, right? Because beyond a venture studio, it's a a, a a business that creates businesses, right? But and, the thing is, yeah, and I'm curious, like how how you kind of balance this out because there's a part of you that you know you were doing all these things because you love creating, right? It's like what you love to do. So I can imagine, at, at least to a certain degree, like you were having a good time, like you were enjoying yourself. You're, but then there's this part of you saying like for the effort that I'm putting in, it doesn't look like, or it doesn't seem like I'm getting enough out of it from a, maybe a monetary standpoint, which all of it obviously is important too, right? You don't want to feel like you're doing a lot of work for not enough payoff from that standpoint either. But how do you balance it too? Because like, like you said, if you were to focus on one thing, maybe the upside would have been more money or more of a payout, but you just didn't enjoy that process. You wanted to do a bunch of things, right? So like, how did, how do you, how do you toe the line? Like, how do you go, 
uh, you know, I want to enjoy what I do, but then I also want to make sure that I'm making enough money for it. And ha- you know, does that yeah, make, does yeah, that no, I, it's it's you you don't toe the line. You have to really define it, right? Because it's like if you do what I did by towing the line, you just you you're 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 just always worn out. And let's fire back up and try again. It's like going through diet diets. Mm-hmm. I would almost equate it to right. So I had to go through. I had to understand what I loved about business. Right. And where I wanted to spend my time and energy in business. Right. I knew it was business, but I didn't understand what aspect of business that I loved yet. Right. And then what I knew about myself more than anything is I loved quantifiable results. Yeah. Right. Like when I, when I could, when I could quantify it much more clear and I, I couldn't quantify like, um, like more infinite, uh, concepts, right? Where I start a league and I have no idea what I want to do with it. I just want it to be big, right? Like, okay, well, what does big mean? Okay, well, how does it get to big? I don't know. I'm just going to make it. It's going to become the UFC. Yeah. Well, how's it going to become the UFC? Because people are going to, I'm going to make this format. It's going to be entertaining, easy to follow. Then the world's going to watch it and it's going to get big just like the UFC did when they did weight classes and, mm-hmm. and, and put rules in, right? Like, and to me, like, I realized that I love creating, um, I love building, but I don't like operating, Yeah. right? And, and to me, I didn't want to be involved in operating a ton of businesses. I wanted to operate my one core business. That's the business that build business businesses. Yeah. And then I wanted to co-find those businesses with other like-minded doer dyers that that have the skill set that I believe in and can help their vision and shape that vision into a profitable, sustainable, acquirable business. Mm-hmm. And then my end game is every time we start a company, how much are we going to sell it for? Who are we going to sell it to? How much revenue does it need? What does it trade at? What's the pathway to get there? How yeah. much capital do we need? How much equity will be we be left with on um, when that acquisition happens? And let's do that, right? And so, and, is that what you're doing now? And that's how I do every single yeah. business, yeah. right? And and some to the purity. When we built and sold the production company, it's to to the to the year to the dollar. Only a lot of magical exponential things happened that scaled it way beyond our wildest dreams. But it's still. It was built to sell. It was built against a plan and hit that plan all the way to acquisition, mm-hmm. right? Only how it the plan happened is like, what? <laughs> what? Right? It's not that that we didn't set out to do it and do it. It's not that we didn't put the milestones and the markers and hit them and, and go through it. It's the actual process that business and life unfolds is so much more mind-blowing than you even imagine. But as long as you define where you want that to go and know the steps to get there, you're going to get there more likely rather than just hoping, I'm going to build a business and hope it works, right, and sell it one day, you know. Yeah. Rob, before we talk about the Deer Deck Machine and all the companies that are involved, et cetera, there's a story that I really want to hear about that I heard a little before about you uh, and that was the story about the hypnotist and how that really changed mm-hmm. the perspective that you had in life. So if you don't mind just kind of delving a little deeper into that and how that even came to be, like what in your mind told you, I got to go find and talk to a hypnotist? Yeah. So look, I am, 
uh, you know, I've always I've always dabbled in the magic side of life. You know what I mean? You're talking to a guy who purchased the time machine uh, off <laughs> the Art Bell radio show, hyperdimensional resonator. Uh, I did attempt to travel through time with it, um, was not successful that I know of, that I know of, at least that I don't remember. Um, but this is what I was on. Um, I was in this sort of place where I was trying to figure out like life in general, right? And, you know, and it was primarily um, as it was related to my skateboarding performance, and so I'm, I started hearing about sports psychologists and sports hypnotists. And so this is pre-internet. So I looked in the yellow pages in San Diego uh, for a hypnotist. And it popped up the great Dr. George Pratt at Scripps La Jolla Hospital, mm-hmm. right, who was a clinical psychologist and hypnotist. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. That's real. Yeah, That's real. You know what I mean? This ain't like, you know, somebody going to like, you know – you know, make me like Like pull my pants down. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I'm, you know, I went, went and met with him and, you know, it was this extraordinary experience, you know, as, as I got in there, I saw he had written a book called hyper success, unlocking like your true potential as an executive. You know, he had worked with all these pro golfers and like really big time athletes. And I'm like, Oh, this is it. And how old are you at this time? 25. 25. And you know, um, and, and I would argue that was sort of the first time I was beginning to lose belief in myself. I was mm. starting to question like the choices I was making and the direction I was heading right. and, and and what I was doing. And and the first thing like I told him I wanted to be hypnotized to like do better in contests. And he was like, "Well, let's just see if your subconscious even believes you're meant to be successful." And Whoa. then when he did all the testing, he's like, I, I got to tell you, your subconscious doesn't believe any part of you um, is meant to have great success. <laughs> and we need to work on your subconscious first. And then it was, you know, was it was still. But was it true? Like you felt that, that I, when he I, said that, where you're like. I, I, <laughs> I mean, like I was lost. Yeah. Right. I was, it was the first time that I really was questioning like you know, sort of what I was doing. Like, I didn't want to be a pro skateboarder anymore. Like, I just wanted to golf. You know, I didn't want to, like, you know, it was all these different things. Like, I wasn't happy. I couldn't, like, uh, find a relationship. Like, you know, I was just partying. Like, I was out of shape, you know. It was just all these things. And, like, I was getting hurt all the time, right? And because the hurt was a release, right? Mm. Fold an ankle, then nobody's can, I don't have to go to the contest. I don't have to try mm. to shoot photos or film, right? So getting hurt was this great release. And, and really, I think that with pre- athletes that have a lot of pressure that you feel get hurt all the time, I really think that that's the psychology of it. There's the pressure goes away for a while when it's like, oh, I'm hurt. Yeah. Um, and you just don't have a passion for your sport. But ultimately, you know, he... We only worked on that and, you know, really my life has never not been on a rocket ship up from that point forward. Never taken a step back in my life in any way, shape or form Um, from that point forward. You know, I've sent numerous people there, sent drama there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most recently, um, last year for, you know, I do a, a, doing a full wedding every five years for my Val Renault. So last year I did a full mega wedding and at the Ritz Carlton and, and Laguna and or Newport. And he presided over uh, the ceremony uh, to give you an idea of how 
uh, long lasting he has been throughout the years of my life of mm-hmm. of going down and and now I, now it's like my subconscious is like so next level it just doesn't even it's not even like we're just friends and he just looks at me as like you're the gnarliest dude ever <laughs> and it's like you know i went down to my my wife wanted to get some work done on like her fear of driving with our kids and I said, hey, hey, can you just test me uh, if my subconscious is, believes I'm going to be a billionaire? He's like, get over here. <laughs> you know, he goes through his, get out of here. You know you're going to be a billionaire. Like, oh, <laughs> thanks, doctor. Uh, you know, but that's the, the evolution. Now, look, I'm, you know, the subconscious uh, and the conscious is, in the, is where the battleground takes place, you know, and, and everybody knows it's upper and lower self controls uh, your ability to form great habits. Uh, that ultimately lead to uh, the growth that you need to evolve and become the optimal version of yourself. You know what I mean? I think that that's part of personal mastery is 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 mastering uh, your lower self, which I think you can only do once you've gained control of of the subconscious. And and the subconscious is just like anything else; you compound in a negative way or a positive way over time. Yeah. Um, and and for me, I think it was just the beginning of compounding. Um, the subconscious self-belief in more exponential ways. But again, it wasn't fully harnessed until I decided to define the life and the person I wanted to Mm -hmm. be and then build everything around that. You know, know, one thing thing I want to talk about, you kind of mentioned a couple of times, but like about being a billionaire. And I'm curious in your perspective, what will that mean to you? Like, is it just something that you'll kind of check off the list? Like, I accomplished this and that's it? Or is there some some deeper thing there of like what you want to accomplish as a billionaire or things uh, like yeah, that? I'll tell you what, you when you get this much clarity, right? Like, you don't like, it's fun to say, but you know, really like to me, I my goal business-wise is a billion dollars in liquidity, yeah. right? And, and, and over time, the way that I invest, um, that liquidity would, would grow into, to, you know, a billion dollars in value, right? right? Like I'm, uh, because you don't, it's an unusual path, right? To chase liquidity versus, you know, you could be Jeff Bezos and build Amazon. You're worth a hundred million versus like if he just built it to make a hundred million dollars and sold it in 2000 and 1999 before the, the, uh, tech burst, bubble burst and he lost 80% of his wealth and yeah. you know it's like I'm it's because I know that like what I need money for what I want from money what type of lifestyle that I want to live how and what I want to do with with all of the money that I that I create it's it's a little bit different right and then as you begin to grow extraordinary wealth it's like you know you now it's not even like a question of whether or not you do it right mm-hmm. it's like your system works and you continue to feed the system and the energy comes from getting better and better and optimizing your already automated system right like that's where the the excitement actually comes from and to me like as i'm you know generate more money and have bigger success I hire more and and get more detailed in the vision and the goal that I want the company to become, right? Um, it's in in everything that I want it to ultimately accomplish and scale um, for the rest of my life, right? As it relates to what this company means to me and as I begin to continue to grow and evolve it. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't look at it. 
um, as like some sort of milestone or, or, or check of what it is. And it's, it's a, it's a fun number at scale, right. Of wealth. Right. But, and, and you can really, you know, I can move my wealth, what my actual personal wealth is all over the place. Yeah. Um, versus like how I track myself on the liquidity I've generated. Mm-hmm. Right. Because man, it's so much more exciting when it's like, this is what I paid taxes on. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's just a, a, like for me, a much more, exciting sort of way because it again i i want that definitive like end like i want the definitive marker i want an roi number i want an irr number and even the way i invest um my my personal wealth is through that lens of just loving like the value being created and the return on the basis, right? Right. The difference with the machine is I also have to account for the amount of energy that I put into it, right? And additional capital that goes into resourcing a team that supports a concept like a venture studio, you know? But it's this beautiful matrix of numbers that, that is really just exciting to look at and follow and be a part of. And I, and I only really can do that after I stopped and learned all aspects of finance at an extraordinary level that now I look at business through the lens of the financial opportunity rather than looking at, at business through the lens of an amazing idea and how cool it would be to do it. So Rob, the Deer Deck Machine is now a venture studio, essentially a business, not even an incubator, business creator uh, and incubator. Um, Where do you come up with these business ideas and what are some of those ideas that you guys are working on now? Yeah, look, for for the most part, it's all incoming, right? And it's, 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 you know, in in concept, we're a fully integrated multi-platform universe of venture creation, um, media, community, and philanthropy, right? So what does that mean? We, we create, um, companies and our deal flow comes from, from, we, we look for experienced, uh, founders that have solid founder market fit, at least as it relates to the type of business, um, that it's at the idea stage so that we will co-find it, create it together. We will fund, um, the entire development, which tends to be around, you know, two, 200 to 300,000. Then we will play a part in all rounds. And on, on the second round, um, you know, we will lead it if the, if there's getting a ton of, uh, momentum in the business, right? Because what, what you're playing for is when you have a winner, how do you own as much of it as possible at, at the liquidity stage, right? So then, Okay, well, what is what is the media and the community and the philanthropy side? Right. So the media is like starts first with the with Build with Rob podcast. That's now amplifying our way of thinking, our founders, and sort of our ideology on business creation to b- build awareness to everything that we're creating, but create gravity for the higher quality founders and people that want to be a part of us. Why do we do liquidity vintages when we sell a company and an exit trophy? And make action figures out of our founders when we do a company with them because we are building gravity to get the highest quality possible founders. And our system, the machine method, is this highly optimized 
system to essentially build and accelerate ideas to product market fit because that's actually when you when you have a real company and you have something that can actually create value and become acquirable the community is our machinist how do we build consumer collaborators they basically are part of our entire process right so we send them here's a new shoe that we're thinking about designing what do you think about it what where, where should we go next with our mind right products like what should we we're rebranding outstanding foods what do you think of that so now we have this loyal consumer collaborators that are playing a part in our process but also part of our initial core customers so what is that doing that adds more value. Now we're amplifying you as a founder through media. We have a proven system and process that it will accelerate the success of your idea. We have the experience of multiple different businesses yep. and industries. Now we have community and amplification. And then on the foundation side, every time we sell a company, we put money into the foundation. We put a million in so far and that goes to underrepresented, underappreciated entrepreneurs that 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 we support basically all the great um, current charities that have educational programs for entrepreneurs, whether it's recently, you know, uh, previously incarcerated mm -hmm. women or people of color, underserved communities like young prodigies, like, like that have pro entrepreneurship programs. And then we fund business plan competitions as like a bonus for those, um, for those programs right so we basically act as amplification on that so again what yeah. is all of this this is back to the our passion is creating right like we we really believe a systematic approach to creating is is where you are going to find the most success because you're going to be failing and evolving with intent and and driving to automation and optimization is where you actually find greatness right so the entire ecosystem is fully integrated under sort of the same principle mm -hmm. and then rob and the machine are are it's essentially like a very unique one of a kind family office Right, because at the end of the day, the top management still is is responsible for overseeing sort of my strategy for my overall personal personal wealth, and then you know I own the company a hundred percent and finance everything myself a hundred percent, so when it goes down, my venture is actually my passion and everything that I love to do, but it's also my own capital, and I have a, a I treat it no different than how I would treat if I was investing as a family office the way that the company runs mm. only it's it's you know, and then then use sort of that like ability to create content and have a platform to c connect it all together and still monetize the brand that is Rob Deerdeck only connected to the entire ecosystem all working together as one big unit. You know yeah. I mean? Is there anything I'm sure I'm sure this is stuff that you think about every day um, with Rob Deerdeck, sorry, Deerdeck machine, but is there anything particular that you are like super excited about building or working toward at least in the foreseeable future for yourself? Like any, any specific type of idea or concept or industry, anything like that? Man, no, because I love them all. All over the place? I don't care. Yeah. It don't, man. We're in the middle of some builds right now, and it's just like, what? You know what I mean? It's like, you know, 
you know, we're launching Jolie Skincare Co., which is essentially a water filter for the shower. Mm. And you think to yourself, like, well, what's the water filter for the shower? Like, like, you know, what does that even mean? And then when you realize that there's this, you know, $100 billion skin and hair care market that isn't even taking into account the fact that, um, you know, you're spending all this money on these products and these innovations for your skin and hair when what's ki- killing your skin and hair the most is your water, right? And and the reality of it is, is now like like making water be the first step in beauty is where the opportunity is. And then it's a water with the filter system that has to be changed. So your unit becomes your acquisition and your reoccurring revenue is your filter long term. And then you have this giant white space in a world that nobody thought to attack from a beauty positioning um, that has a world-class CEO that built a giant company that now this is his, his where he saw white space and an opportunity to attack. Now, would I have ever thought that I'd be in the beauty space, like <laughs> dancing with the devil on some water filters? No. And, but like, as soon as like he laid out the vision, I'm like, oh man. And it's like, you know how experienced he is. You know, this is his magnum opus. Like all of his like experience has led to this. And it just, it's, gets so exciting and then as it's developing like oh like you know that we're about to get our first ones that we get to try here mm-hmm. you know we're already seeing the packaging like oh mm-hmm. you know what does he do to launch customer acquisition he went and, and got all the the data of what's in because the the every city has to release the chemicals and and toxins in the public water system and he scraped all of that from every city and they do it by zip code of every zip code in the country and then built out a software to where you can go to the website and put in your zip code to tell you everything that's in your water. So it, this incredible even marketing and customer acquisition to load the funnel, yeah. the, these are just, again, it, this is high-level business creation and like – with brilliant founders that see real opportunities and it never gets old. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's always exciting. And then it's like, Oh, like, Oh, we got, you know, it's like every part of it is exciting. But what I didn't have to do is like, I didn't come up with that. I didn't like have to figure out like the algorithm to build out the, you know, <laughs> to fig like, okay, who are we going to hire to like source that? You know, I don't, I get to live in the, in more of, of the discovering the person helped shaping the idea being like what I consider my role is like like, a talent manager almost. Yeah. But I would say I would almost consider myself a Sherpa, right? A visionary Sherpa where like I can help keep you aligned to the vision and keep and help you see further than what you can see and always keep the, the end goal in mind because I, I see business so holistically and I see that with so many businesses Mm -hmm. that I can triangulate what's happening in our superfood snack brand that can be um, applied to a a water filter brand, Mm -hmm. right? And and as all of these things are happening, I can – constantly communicate our learnings and and sort of different thing that's happening that we're seeing working with other brands cross portfolio right mm-hmm. because it's still I push it out to a world class A plus CEO that's driving all of this right and because at the end of the day it's still like the individual 
is realizing a vision and, and you grow a company into its potential. And that requires nonstop micro pivoting and micro failure and trying this and that. There is this immense chaos. And that takes a certain type of person and as well as the right timing in the right market um, is in the right product mm-hmm. and the right nuanced value proposition mm-hmm. for the magic to actually occur, right? right? It, it's pure art, science, and magic. You got to be creative. There's fundamentals, but you got to you gotta get lucky to find success in business. It's totally. the reality. Well, I guess more so from a learning standpoint, have there been any failed companies under the Deer Deck machine? And from a high level, what was or what were some of the reasons why it didn't work out? So, I, like, I think the through line for all of our, all, you know, and there's only been one that's out of business. Um, and um, I, I attribute that to market, right? It was a 360 VR uh, app. Like, this guy, uh, Dimitri, he's, he's brilliant, he's a genius. Like he literally, we put I've, the company out know, of business. I think I know which one you're talking about. He put a, yeah. he put the company out of business, and he went and like took over another company and took it public in like nine months. Right? Yeah. Like he's like the illest, illest, illest CEO ever, and it was market that got him, and it was this convergence of he had figured out a way to to broadcast live 360 video for $3,000 a unit and super cheap compared to like next VR that was like 250,000 a unit and you see next VR and all this stuff that's happening like like and you saw what was happening with Instagram live and now next VR and all this it was a convergence only it was like cost effective and was scalable and like here it is like this is a convergence going to be so big but what happened to 360 video and VR uh, live broadcasting live went this way VR was like 3D TV Right. So it was like the reality, it seemed right. like the perfect time, but it was just the market, the consumer market just did not care. Right. And that's when the market turns on you. Right. Um, it just is what it is like that. That's why you, we do all that, all that research, right founder, right idea, right everything. But there's and a component the of luck turn. that you just can't measure. Right. And that's, yeah. that's yeah. when it turns the other way. And then I think almost every other aspect, um, is founder market fit, man. It is, it is somebody, we launched a company with, with a great CEO and an industry they knew nothing about. And they were in that industry because they looked at how hard their industry was. And, oh, this is, there's, there's so many more benefits to being in this industry. Oh, it's higher margin. And it's like, you know, longer shelf life and all this like different sort of stuff. And it's because you don't understand it. All of them are hard. Yeah. All of them are hard. All of them have like pitfalls and drawbacks. All of them are basically impossible to be successful in. Yep. There is a reason not to start every single business that has there's more reasons to not start every business that's ever been started than there is reasons to actually start a business. Yep. That's just the facts. Yeah. Like there's no any diligence you could ever do on an idea would tell you never to do it. Yeah. Uh so you have to beat through that. And that's the reality of you want somebody that's already learned a lot of of the ins and outs of an industry if right. you're going to build with them. So it's, and it's so clear. And then the other major thing is, is capital staging, right? Like it would be, oh, you could launch this with, for 500 grand, right? Like, and then you're out of, then what happens? 
the product is six months behind getting to market. You started hiring people and burning money with that 500 grand, all these delays. Then you get to market and you don't have the revenue. Now it's not generating the revenue you predicted and now you're out of cash. And now you're trying to raise money like on the vision that it could be only you now have the proof that it's not really working. Like in market, it's like that sort of mismanagement of capital in the beginning was another major thing that I think we now manage super diligently, right? Where it's like, you don't even hire until there is a clear path that the production of this product is ready to go. And then you have the capital raised to have the long runway uh, to, to create the value before you need another round or you can get to, to product market fit in some sort of exponential way. So it's really capital staging and founder market fit, I think is the, the purest one. The market timing stuff, you're always got to be guessing because you got to be a little bit out in front and you got to be a little bit in a place where, you know, you know, it, that, that it may not work. You, you know, when I look at the white space of the Jolie filter, like, man, it's big. Mm. But there's also the other side is, well, maybe people just don't want to go through the process of filtering their water, yep. right? And the market's going to dictate the status that. quo. Yeah, yeah you yeah. know what I mean? Like where it's like it doesn't have enough of an effect on the way that it, it makes them feel or their skin or the value prop. So again, these are you, – you want, you want to be able to fail with intention, yeah. Right. You want to you want to be very clear on why it'll work and why it won't work. And then know when to pivot when it's not working and not waste your time on or something. Just drop that, it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah, it's really it. about like like you know, for us we build all pre-pivots, right? Build pre-pivots into every brand, right? And and here's why, right? When you there's a cup there's just a handful of things you're never going to be able to predict. And that is that is, you know, you can have a great brand in the case of Mindrite. We knew there was a huge opportunity of putting nootropics and adaptogens and superfoods as snacks because of the wave that was happening in supplements that had not been done in foods. Um, we launched with the bar, but we created a drink mix uh, based off the success of a liquid IV and a coffee mix based off of the success of, of what was happening with, with Laird's um, – coffee creamer right yeah. and in in the event that the bars don't catch right that you can you can begin to see the bars is the biggest market but the hardest one to penetrate but easiest customer adoption right so you make this very strategic path forward but you still are planning if you are you pivot into another product at, rather than necessarily being okay what do we do no one's buying the bar same with our footwear when we launched Luso Cloud footwear we knew this well, the opportunity was having a premium um priced footwear at $135 there was dead space between a Gucci slide at at 250 and Adidas slide at uh um, 30. you know, 35, 40, right. Yeah. And nobody was playing there, but we also knew that it was dangerous and we wanted to really build a business on a, on in this day and age on a big margin. But what do we do? We designed a $99 version and a blown $60 version. Um, just in case like it didn't connect at all, we would, we would be able to move right. into it before we burn through the capital, uh, initially, right? Yeah. So it's again, almost like testing product market fit within the business. That's what I'm saying. With but within the launch, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. So okay, it's we just a part of it. Yeah, it, and and again, what is that? That's an extraordinarily. You can't get to that level of intuitively building and operating unless you are 
doing this as a form of mastery. Right. right. And you begin to see like, oh, if we would have did that with because really I learned it on um, when, you know, Outstanding Foods pivoted. He had he was already working on a pigless pork rind, but launched with a pigless bacon chip and supply chain issues and customer adoption. He immediately pivoted into that rind and the business exploded. Right. And so it's like it's like but it it. From going through that, I just knew like, okay, that's the way we have to think about everything because it's like you have to be thinking about like, okay, you have a great thesis here, but it's it's a great hypothesis here, but it is not a thesis, right? right. So like you have to like be prepared to, to stretch out and, you know, I go back to, I love it all. I love it all. I don't like even thinking about like, oh, where would we, where are we going to like pre-pivot? You know what I mean? Like even just thinking about it now, okay, let's go. Like, I think this is going to work. I don't know. We tested it. It feels like it. You don't know. You don't, you have no idea what your company is until you get that thing in the streets. And now it's like consumer's decision to do it. And I promise you every single person that's thinking of starting a business, do not think you are going to start a business and start doing ad spend on Facebook yeah. and that you're somehow going to buy customers at this day and age. You have to create a business that has a clear value proposition that can be marketed from 10 to 20 different angles for you to build an affinity within a consumer base one at a time through a multi-platform marketing mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. Save that and put that in a school somewhere yes. because that's that, that'll how be a you quote build. graphic on our Instagram <laughs> and Twitter. Yeah, Give me gonna, an Instagram yeah, quote. Yeah, you know, Rob, the, the one thing that I think about when you when you kind of went through that right now was that when you do have a purpose, right? When you do have an intent, whether you succeed or whether you fail, you know why, right? right? If you're just let's call it a clothing brand. If you're a clothing brand that's like I'm gonna do it all. Okay, great. I'm sure it's gonna be cool, but you don't. It doesn't work. And if I ask you, well, what happened, man? I don't know. I don't think the customers liked it. What did they not like? You can't pinpoint it. Yeah. So now you didn't learn anything. In fact, you probably regressed, right? And I think they always say fail fast for that purpose, right? It's like, or succeed fast, right? It's like, you should know why it's working or why it's not working pretty quickly. Yeah. And then just, this is obviously referring to business. And then just pivot. I mean, I guess you could do it for relationships. So if it's not working immediately, just let it go. Yeah. But, you know. There's many correlations. Totally. Business, life, you know, everything's the same. But it's just, it's just, I like that because I think a lot of entrepreneurs overthink sometimes. Mm -hmm. They think about doing so many different things. They're like, oh, I could do this. I could do that. Just stick to one thing, do it well, and then figure it out later. Yeah, and look, I, I, I fail fast is deceiving, right? Because it's like, it, and I just think fail with intention um, is is so much more real, you know? Because it's like you, you, if you pick one thing and you go that direction and it's not working and you just keep trying it over and over and over and like try some sort of different way to market it or some sort of different way, it's like, and a lot of people, the problem is a lot of people found success doing that. Mm -hmm. Where they fought for seven or eight years yeah. and then finally like Jennifer Anston wore it and now yeah. we're, we're blown up. But it's like that, that, that sort of lens of always, always like failing with intention of like, okay, this is what we're, we're going for. Here's why it should work if it doesn't understanding why it didn't work. Right. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm a lot of times people 
get too wrapped up in just loving their idea and loving what they're creating so much that they can't even look at it through the lens of like, like why, what does this actually need to be successful and what am I doing or not doing at this right. point on why that's not happening? Right. You know? Yeah. Well, Rob, this has been an incredible conversation. I mean, you know, obviously you've had an incredible career and everyone knows that. And I know, I think we wanted to really get inside your head and how you kind of see life and how you approach just not just life, but business. And I think we did that and uh, we can't thank enough for you know sharing that with us, your wisdom. I learned a lot. Um, and so, uh, you know, can't wait to see what you do next with Dirt Deck Machine. And hopefully we can do this again in the future because uh, I'm sure there's a lot more to come. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me.